We did a really good interview today with uh, Daniel Frank out of Silver Screen Printing and Embroidery. I'm, I'm really excited actually for you guys to hear this one. Uh, he bought a shop, a contract shop that was doing about two and a half million revenue. And after four years, grew it to seven. But more importantly, he has an outside the industry thinking. Like this guy comes from logistics, he comes from trucking. And the way he thinks about the team and growth and sales and customer mix is powerful. Very excited for you to hear this episode. The first thing, though, is that we got to talk about our amazing sponsors for helping us to put on this show. First up is GraphX Source. Dan actually talks about using GraphX Source as an asset to the business because he was having issues with retention in the art department. So he's testing out a designer doing production artwork, so SEPs and digitizing. And then he's going to actually test out the customer service and order entry side. So that's pretty cool. Graphicsource.com. If you need a solution to help improve efficiency and reduce costs in your art department, give them a go. When it comes to SEPs, mockups, creative art, order management, digitizing, back office admin, or customer service, they are there to help. Make sure you mention Printable Pod when you get started. That gets you 50% off your first order. Next up, Easy Way. You know you shouldn't be spending all day cleaning dirty screens. Easy Way's line of environmentally conscious chemicals helps you get the job done faster and more efficiently and will cost you a fraction of the cost per screen. Cost, 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 reducing. 701 and 842 are Campus Inc.'s favorite Easy Way chemicals to clean with and to work with. Honestly, they work with 100-plus distributors, but they're really there to be able to help you. So reach out on how-tos, best practices. If you're stuck, if you want to get more efficient, check them out and reach out. Supercolor is the world's best heat transfer. It's made for screen printers by screen printers. And honestly, they understand the pressures and expectations of the screen printing business. And so that's why they really pride themselves on being super fast and super easy Steven's mentioned so many times just on how many times they come through in a pinch, getting things done quickly, any issues on reprints. It's just they are there to help. They've got an incredible customer service team. That's a big part of Supercolor. And honestly, a big part of being a partner that you need to help you grow your shop. Mention Printavo and enter in the code PRINTAVO15. That gets you 15% off your first order. Last but not least, Multicraft Daddy. Go to Multicraft underscore Daddy and shoot him a DM. Why? Because he's giving out PMI tape every single week to people who send him a DM. For over 50 years, Multicraft Screen Printing and Digital Supplies have been providing you with top brands at competitive pricing. And if you mention the Printable Pod, you get an extra 10% off your first order too. So send him a DM. He loves to be able to chat with you. Thank you, Dave and the team. We appreciate you. Let's jump into the episode. Dan, I was going to say Nick Wood introduced us. Um, if you could describe Nick Wood in like three words, how would you describe him? The ultimate sales guy is what popped in my head. He's he's just classic, uh, really good guy, very outgoing. Uh, love the guy to death, right? So... Uh, uh, he's just perfect for the role, if you ask me. Do you guys use GraphX? 
We have one. Uh, we have one outsource in Honduras for art, but we're thinking about bringing on a couple more. Why'd you get into that? Did you have them in house and someone left, or uh, we have a. In screen print, we have four artists, but we just felt like, you know, it's hard to train and get a good artist and we would lose them. And, you know, so we felt like it was worth a try and it's worked out really good for us. So we're going to bring on, you know, attrition or growth. We're going to bring on another one. And then he also has customer service. So, you know, we're thinking about doing some order entry stuff with him as well. Do you feel like, okay, what are there specific things that they do like very specifically and then your artists in house do something different? Yeah, they do uh, a lot of, we have a, we have a portal system, which is our uh, management system with our customers and, and they upload art. So they go ahead and set it up for us. They do a lot of the back end stuff, kind of the more administrative. Um, also they do some really good steps and things like that. So um, we got a guy named Manuel. He's pretty talented, actually. So we'll give him also, you know, actually pretty complex steps and things like that. And he'll work that some concept art as well. So, you know, I think, you know, pretty talented guys. And I really like that we lost, we lost, I can't remember her name. We lost a gal and Manuel, Manuel stepped in and, uh, they had him trained and it was really seamless. So that's kind of why you pay for outsource, right? That there's a team of people that know your business and, they do a good job at that. I think that's probably the most valuable for us is that we feel like we have support there as well. So I know you bought silver screen printing um, and you guys are doing, and I can bleep this out if this is not public, but $7 million as a contract shop plus. Um, so, but you bought into the business. So I'm kind of curious, what were you doing before? And then we'll get into this, the silver screen printing side. Uh, I was in, uh, the reason I moved to Reno is it's real close to my hometown. It's 1900 people. It's in the California side, but if you know Reno, it's right on the border of California. So, uh, you know, it's kind of coming home for me, but, uh, I was in construction uh -huh. and, uh, my dad and I mid eighties hit the Jimmy Carter era where the interest rates went almost to 20%. And we lost our spec homes. And so him and I actually roomed up in San Jose. I went to San Jose State University, and he went back to Ford Aerospace and um, got my degree. But I always kind of wanted to do the international uh, thing. I mean, I just had a passion to travel. So I got uh, market international marketing degree, did an internship in uh, Germany, and then, uh, and then I just got into logistics. So if you know anything about logistics, it's not too sexy. I mean, it's trucking and warehousing and ocean freight and air freight. I did that for for years, lots of travel, met a lot of really nice people, kind of rose up the ranks to CEO in the last three positions. And uh... wait, 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 <laughs> that, yeah, that's a, so that's pretty cool. So, um, and, and what kind of, what, like what kind of trucking and logistics? Cause I hear that a lot is like trucking, like, and I just think of the stuff that we do with trade shows and, and, you know, shipping and how bad we are at it. Yeah, but uh, Dan, it was just like Bruce a bigger and I company. Could never, yeah, Bruce and I could never do that. Why is that? It's just so uh, much detail-oriented. We, we, we have messed up more trade show logistics things than a lot of other things. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. But, but okay, going into it, like, yeah, are you allowed to say the names of these companies? Because I, I think logistics industry is fascinating. Yeah, I worked for uh, Geotis Wilson. Which, at the time, was a company called OHL, a big uh, warehousing distribution company. They did, you know, air freight, ocean freight. We got bought out by a French company. I just started 
decide to depart with the buyout. And that's kind of the gig when you're, you know, when you rise up a little bit, especially there's a lot of merger acquisitions. So you kind of, you know, you're on, I was usually, I came on board with that company as kind of a, a group of about nine executives to save the company, which we did owned by private equity. So when they sold, we, we kind of all went our different ways. Um, I went to a private company called Weber. They were big warehousing. They are a big warehousing distribution company in LA. So I moved to LA and uh, ran that as a CEO, but almost a thousand employees of, I don't know, four or five million square feet of warehousing, trucking, you know, we had lots of power units and stuff. So that, that company was, was struggling as well. Um, we turned that around with a team of people and, you know, that was, that was, that was a good gig. It was probably, Wait, what is your what is your approach as a, as a professional CEO coming to a company of that size? You said not performing super well. How do you look at it to say, okay, here's the systems I'm gonna you know think about or methodologies I'm gonna think about to be able to turn this thing in the right direction? Yeah, I think assessment, uh, assessing the team and really assessing you know the the areas where they're making money and they're not making money. Uh, in that situation, I had to close a lot of facilities. Uh, downsized the company probably to about, I don't know, 600 employees, so a lot of layoffs, very difficult. Um, you know, I was kind of the turnaround guy, so you go in there and it's a it's a tough job, but they had a good executive team, and so we just really looked at the technology which was behind. We looked at uh, the facilities that were losing money and the verticals that were in that, you know, and then we had to assess all the clients. Um, you know, can't speak about how bad it was, but it wasn't great at all, but... Uh, you know, I kind of just got into the become what's the most in the industry is called a turnaround CEO. I'm not sure that's just logistics, but you know, you, you got to be the guy that goes in there and makes all the hard choices, right? Um, and uh, and then of course sales is really really important. So you know, we had about nine salespeople. I brought it down to three, um, and then just the real effective guys. And you know, I was on the road constantly meeting the customers and and working through the, the process of getting us to profit. We did it in about. 15 months, so that was pretty good, but uh, very stressful, for sure. Um, that was an independent owner. His name was Nick Weber, and he's a great guy. He's in his 80s, and, and the, he sold the private equity as well. You know, it's kind of the, you, you get into the save business, and uh, it's lucrative as a CEO, for sure, but it's, you know, it's you, you got to be on your game, and you got to be fairly aggressive. Um, when you get rid of the unprofitable parts, how do you do you start? Is that the rebuilding phase then, with the team, and then the the doubling down on what works? Yeah, one of the things that that I found is, is that uh, you know there's a lot of bloated areas and companies that have you know traditionally gotten to the spot where they're losing money. So you've got to really re refine and uh, downsize the areas that are not effective. For example, accounting was struggling. The CFO was really over his head. So I brought in a new CFO and she was really, really good. She's still there. And, uh, uh, and then the other problem with, uh, with logistics, which I found also in screen print is, is that, you know, half the customers weren't making money. So you've got to, and it's not always raising rates. It's really finding out if it's a fit or not. So in, with, you know, it's kind of hard to educate on where, but if you have a 300,000 square foot warehouse and you have 50 clients, for example, I would bring those down to 15, make the hard choices to bring it down to 15. You have to be kind of fearless because you're going to end up with empty space and then you have to backfill that with, with customers that are profitable. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. You're, you're downsizing and you're upsizing at the same time, if that makes sense. This is, okay, Farrakh, this is like the whole thing where this is, uh, 
if if a CEO came into your business today, what they would do, this is what I'm always interested in because it's like, I think people who start the business versus come in later have a, such a better perspective of what's going on where there's maybe a lot of passion projects or no, it'll work or you, you keep spending dollar after bad dollar. Um, people are harder to, to really part ways with if it's, ah, I got to rehire, I got to do this and this. And, you know, it, it ends up that folks just stay around a long time uh, who may not be a good fit. But you have that like, whoa, 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 <laughs> you know, what's going on here yeah. point of view. Anyway, that's why I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's it's harder to say no than it is to say yes in business and seasons seasoned executives that are non-biased know how to say no. Like it's so hard for me, Dan, to say no to something I really want to do, but shouldn't do it in the business, right? Either that might be equipment that might be taking a job. That might be giving them a price break. That might be all those different things. I feel like when you're the owner founder, you're kind of a bleeding heart for your customers, right? <clears throat> and I feel like that is like one of the deadly sins of small business owners. Yeah, there's a lot of emotion, I think, that goes into business. And I think that's great. But sometimes, you know, when a company's in trouble and they're not going to be able to pay their bills, you have to make those hard choices. I think with the customers, I mean, for sure. I think also, I was thinking while you guys were talking, it's also internal as well. Like at that company, there was three legacy salespeople that hadn't sold in years, but they were just camping on their accounts, right? So they were highly paid, um, and I couldn't really get them to you know, kind of re-engage in hunting instead of farming, if that makes sense. And so, you know, it, it almost like the customers and them went at the same time. Not not something you, you know, you enjoy, but it's, you know, the way I looked at it is I was hired to do a job and I need to be objective and I need to be fair, but I also had to make rapid, fast choices to, to make sure that the company was, became stable. How do you do that with some of the people that have been there but aren't probably performing as best as possible? Um, unfortunately, you don't have a long timeline, but you know, one-on-ones, really sit down with them and try to make sure as clear as possible that you're, you're explaining the, you know, the objective and how critical it is. But I think sometimes, kind of like you said, Stephen, is, is that you know, they don't really believe the landscape's ever going to change, and they just kind of go through the motions, and they think, well, here we go again. But you know, unfortunately for them, you know, that's not the case, but you're trying to your best to, to educate them and say, no, no, this is really, really important to get your support. But you've got to, you've got to get support as quickly as possible. How, how do you, th- like, do you get complacent? Like, how do you stay fresh so you're not complacent then over time? Because I wonder if part of it is, yes, there's the emotion side, and then maybe the other part is it, they've been around for 10 years or whatever it is, right? And And so... How, how do you, I don't know. How do you still have that mental pro- even okay running silver screen? Maybe like okay, five years later, a couple people probably at the best fit, but I don't know. They've been around, they'll fix up, you know. And then you look back another year and they're they're still doing the same thing. Do you kind of look outside or, or do you just try to make it very analytical? And it's like they're either green or they're red, and they've been red for three months, and so this has got to change. Yeah, with Silver Screen, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was a good company for sure, uh, but they're, you know, been in business since 2003. Uh, the owner, you know, 
kind of began to burn out and really shift his priorities toward his family and different things. So, but a really great guy, by the way, is he's still on as a consultant. And, and one of the reasons I bought the company is I could tell he's just a good guy, right? And he really built a, a good company, but there was some areas in the business that need to be addressed. But COVID hit by about the time I was, you know, I, I had a lot more patience here because, you know, the company's making money, uh, you know, just trying to get to know folks. But six or seven, about seven months in, COVID hit. So we had to shut down down we were not considered an essential company i thought and then we reopened with 12 people so we went from 43 to 12 you kind of pick your best you pick your best 12 right so uh, we did furlough everybody but you know some people i didn't think were a fit to come back so i would say that you know covid kind of helped that sorting process out um a little bit uh, if that makes sense yeah so let's talk about, I, I, I think the same. I say a lot of times COVID was the biggest reset yeah. button on my business where I, you take it down to the frames and the bones and then you just slowly start building it back up. I think a lot of us would argue that happened and then you, know, you didn't feel as guilty, right? Because your employees either got unemployment or you know, furloughed or whatever that is. So can we talk a little bit about the M&A process? Like how did you, it's, it's obviously fascinating that you're now, you know, an executive at in logistics. Now you're like, okay, I want to come back home. Were you searching for a screen printing company? How did this all come about? Yeah, true. It's, you don't see that very often, by the way. If that is, the yeah. case. is there a, is there a Facebook group no. I don't know about? <laughs> Buying and selling your my shop. buddies come and visit and they they walk around the shop and they go, what what were you thinking? And I said, well, I, but my whole thought process was I uh, I'm a B two B guy. I'm not. I don't want to pizza parlor, right? Or uh, a retail shop or anything like that. I, because of logistics, I support it. You know, logistics companies support the manufacturing. So I was, for example, one of my accounts uh, in, you know, some time back with Starbucks. And so I helped them, you know, redesign some of their manufacturing processes, you know, going in and going out. And so I was always intrigued by manufacturing. You know, they did the coffee roasting and a lot of the, the warehousing distribution we did for them. Um, and I just felt like, you know, it was a good fit. Uh, one thing that I've always said, and it's, I don't, you know, you always want to be as humble as possible about your assessment of what you could bring to the industry, but I saw it as an art business. Um, I saw a lot of focus on art, but I didn't see a lot of focus on production and meaning that efficiencies, things like that. I, I think it's a great fun business. I really like it. I'm glad I came to it, but I think there was some opportunity for me to really, you know, look at the business more as a sausage factory and, 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 and although the art's important, if you don't get the goods out, you don't have speed and quality. Like we're at five days right now and we have 130,000 pieces either coming in or in and we're cranking it out the door. Um, I would say that the owner before, he was good at speed, but he wasn't, you know, scalability was, was a little bit of an issue for him. So how do you... How do you really look at the business and say once the order's ready and you've got the proofs and you're all ready to go, how do you how do you get the business how do you get it out as quickly as possible? And you know you want to keep your quality up, so on and so forth. But uh, so we're just really looking at those things and really trying to hone, you know, refine those as much as possible. Wait, but how how do you and, find like why a screen printing shop versus another logistics company or something? Yeah, else? why screen printing? Uh, well, I blew right by that. I mean, there's not a, Reno's a pretty small place, so you, you're not you don't have a ton of options, right? So when I met the owner of this place, I, you know, he'd done a really good job of building up. I think they were about two and a half, two point seven million, something like that. 
um, 40, 40 employees, uh, definitely the largest shop in Reno, and he built a proprietary portal, which is the operating system, which we're upgrading right now. We've got a developer doing that. But, you know, some real good systems and processes that, uh, that you know, I could cut. A lot of the things that he did four years later, we're still doing the same process. Uh, but I don't think, you know, the measuring the business and trying to get the best out of people and trying to create a meritocracy, that's what we call it, and really make sure that the printers are scored in regards to their production and what they're printing versus what their possibilities are and making sure, like we don't do yearly pay reviews. We, we do it based upon merit, meaning that we score them and say if a printer starts at, say, 80%, which is about normal, and they get a coach uh, to do that. Once they get to 85, they get an increase. Once they get to 90, they get an increase. We have a, three printers. Well, I was just talking about this. We have three printers at 100%, and, uh, you know, those are our rock stars, right? They train other printers. They, they get paid uh, very, very well. But, you know, one, one gal, she's been here only seven months, and she's probably got six increases. So the question is, you know, how do you measure performance and how do you reward that? And in this situation, the printers are key, right? Your your floor is key. So what I'm hearing is, you know, the previous owner had good roots, good bones. There's good stuff in the business. He obviously built something that was proprietary. So you're looking at it and saying, okay, there's something yeah. here we can do with it. But what I'm hearing is you brought the people component of now we're going to get people to use this stuff correctly. How, with 43 employees, do you have like a head of HR? How do you, how do you start, you know, if I'm a shop and I have 10 employees and I'm like, I want to start doing what you're doing, where do you start? Is it a clipboard? Is it a person? Like, it just seems daunting when you talk about that stuff, but it's something that we all get Google. Yeah, so we're at 92 employees right now. I checked before I got on here because I knew I'd be asked. So, you know, we've wow. doubled the staff and, all, you know, two and a half, almost three times the size of the business. But what you're saying is what it, what was the starting point? And uh, I think all owners struggle with this, especially when you build a company. Uh, there was, there, he had 43 direct reports. So, you know, creating a leadership team. Yeah, he was a worker. He, you know, we're talking, you know, many, many hours per day, you know, comes in at five and leaves at seven or eight. And uh, he could work, that's for sure. But, you know, I have five what we call coaches now, coaches or managers, and really delegating that authority, uh, working with them. We give them their own P&Ls minus the SG&A, uh, you know, working on labor, uh, working on training, things like that. The good news is that uh, there are four employees have been here almost 15 years um, two of those are key key managers as well. So I should have said, you know, when I came also, I looked at the tenure of the employees and, and the quality of them, and I thought they had a lot of potential. It just hadn't been developed. And, and I'm when I say developed, I mean their leadership skills hadn't been developed. Does that make sense? All right, real quick, I got to tell you something. This is really interesting, and here's why. We formed a company called Inktava. You may have heard of it, but it has three different brands right now, Printavo, Inksoft and Graphics. So we're all sister companies now, a big happy family. What we're able to do is Printavo's managing your shop management and workflow organization. Inksoft can run your website and handle online stores at scale. So running multiple different stores for fundraisers, schools, um, company stores, and everything in between. And Graphics Flow is a brand new product to be able to help reduce all the back and forth with art. So it has a huge art library that you can put on your website so customers can see and pluck what they want. Plus, 
us, you can also be able to collect different ideas and send them to customers to approve as well. Really, really cool. Plus in-app editing. It's like Canva, but specifically for shops. All right, check it out. All those brands are on inktavo.com. That's inktavo.com. All right, thanks. Okay, two things. One, curious how you develop them because we always talk about the whole, you know, do you try to promote within? Uh, The manager versus contributor roles are very different. But also you mentioned, um, so that's the second part, but the first part is the P&L. What do you mean by you gave each coach or leader their own like profit and loss, the sort of department. It's almost a visual process. I can't do that. But you, what I figure is, is I want to give the manager or uh, or the coach uh, their controllables. So in this business, for example, the embroidery manager, he can he can he can control his revenue at some point. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, if embroidery is slow during summer, it's it's just going to be slow. However, he he can he can manage his labor. Uh, he can also manage his COGS, his costs, and he can manage the damages, which can be a large part. On labor, one of the things that I came up with that I haven't seen a lot in the industry, and, and in logistics, it's hard to explain, but employees are not trained on just one department or one thing. Uh, you got people moving different departments, different accounts, so on and so forth. And I saw people kind of siloed. And when I say silo, meaning they, they were a uh, embroidery operator on a machine and that's all they knew. So what we really did is we started uh, training more operators. Training's a big deal. Probably took us two years to get where we're at today but we call it training, cross-training, meaning they get, they can do different types of things within the department and then we labor share like crazy and that's the biggest up uh, uptick that we had is, for example, if embroidery slows down, we want we want those employees trained in other departments so they can be shifted. Um, and we do a lot of shifting. And in the beginning, it was really, really hard. It was culturally like, you know, and then the employee thought they were losing their job if they didn't move departments. And what we do is we actually score them higher when it comes to increases and stuff if they have more skills. Um, so, you know, the culture today is, is that you may be working in logistics one day and doing tagging or receiving, and uh, you, you may be pulled back into embroidery. Uh, in one or two months, and there's really not no, no longer fear with the employees, and there's no longer kind of ownership by the by the managers. I think that's probably our biggest uptick because you know labor controlling labor and the cost of labor is critical for this business. And it's seasonal; it goes up and down, so on and so forth. It's it's really interesting. Okay, when we talk to a lot of shops that are a mix of contract and retail, they're always saying, I'm trying to get rid of contract work. I'm trying to get rid of contract work. I'm trying to get rid of contract work. Whereas you have turned contract work into a science. Um, you kind of said it earlier, like, you know, sausage manufacturing, whatever that might be. What is your, like, your specific role every day, Dan? Like, what do you do when you get to the, you know, your office? Like, yeah, because your your playbook is seems like everyone should be doing it, but you might be one of the only shops that I'm talking to, that we've talked to that are like really doing it. I don't know, Bruce, about you, but like a lot of stuff you're saying is is, is awesome. So, like, what's yeah, what's your day to day? Well, I started role out in like? sales, uh, so you know, I'm I'm my role in the company is is to bring in customers. The good news about contract is you don't need you know, 10 customers a month, one or two is fine, right? Because it takes time to onboard them. I also shifted the focus from uh, 
local, we were 70% local, probably 50% promotional companies. Now we, so what I thought is, is let's, let's focus outside of Reno. But if you know Reno, SNS and Sanmar are here, there's a huge UPS hub. We can serve the West. So my whole mindset, I kind of sat down with myself, if you would, and really, you know, and I kind of just took this on my shoulders to say, you know, what, what do we need to do? And I thought a few things. Number one, go from a local printer to a regional printer. Stay with what I call business to business, which is contract. Don't get distracted by retail. And I don't mean that's a bad strategy for another company because I heard it. Like, oh, you want to buy the garments? And I thought, that's just not our gig. We don't have a big front end, and I didn't want to build one. And then uh, sports was sports and promo were kind of the, the things we did. Um, and I felt like getting after uh, into retailers, it's not retail, but retailers, and supporting them. Like we pick, uh, we import, we don't import, but a lot of, we. 40% of our business now is retail. It was zero when I came. And, uh, you know, we built racks. Of course, I'm a logistics guy, right? So I told them, hey, bring your imports here. I'll pick, I'll pick your garments. I'll go ahead and, you know, do the printing and then ship to the stores. So that was, that was a big uh, item. Also, I thought the uniform companies were, you know, a good vertical as well. So I know everybody uses the word contract, but the way I look at it is, is we had to make a decision, and it was done by the owner before, and I, I supported it, was let's support businesses. Um, I know everybody uses the word contract. When I came in the business, I thought, oh, great, contracts. There's no contracts. I thought, oh, where's the contracts? <laughs> but I, no, there's nothing. There's no so contracts. When I realized. <laughs> it's, it's garage shops offering yeah. contract and pricing. And I also found contract is sometimes is getting other business from other printers that were full. And I thought to myself, so just, just to make sure you guys are clear, we don't do that. Uh, we we support businesses and uh, we'll support them in any way possible from inner tag printing to you know ship to home to ship to stores we do tagging and bagging and all those fulfill you know the fulfillment was not a uh, product here but I we rapidly built that so you know if you think about it from my perspective or if I'm communicating properly sure we're a contract shop but we're really we, we, we serve companies that uh, serve customers. We don't serve customers directly. We provide the support uh, that's necessary. And I think you have to build out those, I think diversifying into f different verticals and also trying to figure out what more support can we do. I mean, it's pretty cool for retailers to be able to ship their imports directly here and for me to be able to rack them and then, and then pick from there. They, we have one client that closed down a 30,000 square foot warehouse you know, re-engineered their entire business model, and they don't touch anything anymore. We do everything for them. Does that make sense? So the 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 whole growth yeah. of the the people side is big. Um, the how are you determining that versus you know the internal promotion to one of these coach roles versus trying to find someone that has the experience? Yeah, I think that the 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 one thing that that I could have ended up in trouble had it not been such a solid buy. Again, the integrity of the owner and the the longevity of the employees is that I don't have the technical expertise in this business. And should had had I lost some of those managers, I think I could have been in trouble because uh, you know it's a very technical business. My screen print manager has been doing it for 14 years, right? Um, so d d helping them learn. Uh, leadership pretty common leadership items if you would i don't know items the right word you know skills if you would and teaching them how to mentor and and raise up captains which we call captains and supervisors and how to create delegated authority how to how do they they would come to me with every question and i would tell them i'm probably the worst person to talk to 
you got to use your expertise. What resources do you need? Right? Does that make sense? And so developing that trust. But but the different like man, I'm sure like you needed to fill some manager slots too, right? In this because there's five people reporting or to did you. you all did, you? did you promote from? That's within? a good question. I yeah. I promoted. Uh, funny story. I had a. Uh, the the owner his name is Dave. Dave asked me to walk the shop and and look around for the guy that had the most potential. And he was the lowest paid guy, and he was kind of a partier. And you know he's just a fun guy though. And I could tell he was really intelligent. And I need a logistics uh, manager um, because we just hadn't built out when we were going to build out fulfillment and all this stuff. And uh, I just started mentoring him and sitting down with him, say, hey, what do you want? What's your goals for life? So on and so forth. And now he's one of my key managers. It's it's a great success story but mentoring him and really seeing the potential in him right uh, where maybe other people didn't uh, and then uh, customer service the same thing uh, we had a young lady I did have turnover of our customer service manager she'd been here eight years um, kind of a little bit of burnout it's not an easy job but this the gal that uh, in her early 20s and she's just on fire she's doing a great job and she's very mentorable so I would say to answer your question I think the key with with leaders is that they're they're listeners and they're learners Right. And that, that we could develop a rapport and that there's trust. I, I feel like when I and I finally am to a point where I have a really good leadership team around me, um, they are going to do better than I would ever do in that role. Right. From an expertise or a task maturity standpoint. But I think that like humbleness that like I'm always going to be a learner, like the biggest turnoff I get when I'm trying to find a yeah. leader is the know it all. Oh, if I have a know it all, like it's just it's, this is not going to work right or like i have an answer to everything or i'm always going to just do the most or win it's like you want a humble modest someone that's going to just learn and listen because i think what you said there dan is like i sat there and i mentored him on life he'll figure out the role i'm just going to be a good coach room okay you use the word coach and captain and you get made the reference to sports do you run your business like a sports team is is there is there sports yeah. a big big emphasis on that well, i just adopt, that, I, I just I went know. with it i think it's kind of fun and cool but yeah he was a big sports guy and we did a lot of sports uh at the time east bay was uh we were the west coast solution for east bay and uh sports was probably 35 to 40 percent of our mm -hmm. business team sports um uh bsn bought out east bay kind of gave us the opportunity also in a little bit of a crisis to pivot away from team sports percentage wise we're less than 20 now um, but to answer your question, yeah, it was a very, it's a very sports culture here for sure. Um, and again, I like sports. So, you know, I think that the problem with team sports, and I know Stephen, you're, you're in that sports and school area is, is that if you're just team sports, you're, you know, you've got a game coming, right? And it, it could be very destructive for the shop if it's 50% of your shop. So retailers, for example, you, you it's a sausage yeah. factory in the sense that as long as you're hitting their time frames, they don't care if it's Wednesday or the next Wednesday, as long as you're doing what you've contracted out. So, Yeah, we um, there's a book. Uh, it's called The Score Takes Care of Itself. Bill Walsh, coach of the 49ers. I don't know if you've ever read it. Uh, but he talked about business as a football team. Um, and you know, everyone learning their routes, even the parking attendant on game day, um, super, super awesome. But we at campus Inc just did a talk a couple of weeks ago about how, you know, everyone's got their different roles and it's important that the defense defensemen go to the defensive back coach and, you know, the quarterback go to the coach on the sidelines or their offensive coordinator but the defensive end should not go to the owner of the of the football team 
um, because there's just, you know, so many breaks when that happens. And so I, I use a lot of analogies. I've started to use a lot more analogies of sports and I could just hear it coming out of the way you, you talked about it there. Um, are there any frameworks, books, Bibles you swear by that have helped you become um, the leader that you are? Yeah, I read a lot. Um, I was just going to look back. Uh, good, good it's on the great. shelf. Yeah, exactly. Good to Great is a book that I think is really, really good because it. you mentioned structure. I mean, probably the hardest thing for a leader to do is to, when I say trust, you know, sometimes we could maybe do it better, but instead mentoring and coaching and watching your leaders fail is hard. But I think that failure, one of the cultures that was here that I didn't like is, is there was a real fear of failure. And I think, you know, developing that situation, like you said, where they're not going to grow and the team's not going to grow if you don't allow for some failure and you really keep your hands out. Right. So I've got an open door policy. Anybody can come talk to me, but I'm not going to make a definitive decision with that input without going to that manager and, or that coach and saying, hey, you know, this is what I see. What do you think? And really working through that delegated authority. It's difficult. I think, you know, you, you want to fix stuff. Right. Um, but uh, and then we've the, Pat Lincioni is another uh, set of books that we've done. If you know who he is, he's got some really good people skills, um, I think. One of the things about this industry is is that you're dealing with folks that don't know business very well. They're probably coming in. They've worked in a couple of different industries and how to really kind of you know bring them into the culture and really help them. You mentioned something that well, I clearly mentioned it. I think life coaching is just as important as business coaching as well. Making sure that you know the employees that come in here feel like they're cared for and that they're listened to, and that you know you don't you don't want to get into their soup in regards to their family life or so on and so forth. But hopefully you can help them in those areas, because if they have a really good understanding or they make progress in their personal life, from like for example, there Dave Ramsey has a financial peace course. We do that every year, and we try to help our employees with you know we pay for the whole thing. And, you know, that's a course, if you look it up, that, you know, really helps them budget and learn learn those skills as well. I mean, if... if Interesting. So, I don't know if that all makes sense, but really, really trying to, no. you know... No, I, I mean, when you... Yeah, when you care about people's lives, at least showing some, you know, like, whether it's education, mentorship, you know, learning financial literacy, they are going to... They're going to work harder for you because you care about something that doesn't affect you as much. Um, I think there's a big unlock there because I think shops think, oh, they should have a job. They should come here every day. They should be ready to work. And that's because I'm paying, you know, paying their living. But like, you obviously have taken a much different approach. Than yeah, that. I mean, even we loan um, our interest free, yeah. uh, we loan our employees up to two two times a year, you know, if they get in a crisis as well, we'll go ahead and create a payment plan for them and do those things. I mean, you know, mm. so, you know, some people get in a crisis, but, you know, was the company compassionate and helpful during those times, right? Do you have an HR manager that really oversees this all? Yeah, when I did this, I, my wife hadn't worked for like 18 years and uh, I begged her to, to help me. And the reason is I really wanted her to help me take care of the employees and navigate the challenges that were there and also the finances. It's really good just to have somebody, you know, I have a full-time accountant. I do trust her. She's really good. But, I, you know, your wife is, you know, going to be pretty rock solid when it comes to those decisions, right? So she's she's got a vested interest in it you know, just double checking everything and making sure purchases are correct. So she does all the inventory and things like that as well. Gotcha. 
And she had some skills. Where she did was you... in corporate America before, obviously. So where did you find your wife? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I worked with her. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kidding. Um, you talked about the this growth too, which is pretty crazy, going from you know two point five or so to to seven million in a couple of years. Uh, but also nailing down this diversity of of sales and and coming from different areas um where where does the where did those come from was this networking just knocking on doors like emailing trade shows uh what what is the plan i've already told you my strategy in corporate america i just you know sometimes you just copy the thing you know and you do it again so i did off we we did as a team get in a room for about eight hours and we did off board about 40% of our clients. We had to create room and uh, you know, I've been asked a lot of times, how do you do that? And it wasn't just size. It was really because we work business to business and support them, you know, do, do they know their art? Uh, you know, how, how does the customer experience look? Because a lot of times you'll get customers where stuff comes back all the time. And a lot of times it's really about understanding what they're looking for. Uh, do they know garments? Do they uh, are, you know, how do they work with us? Is it seamless? So on and so forth. So that was probably the first step to the sales. And that, again, I told you, that's kind of my DNA. I, I look toward the existing customer base and, and it's kind of a leap of faith, right? I mean, you have to say, if I'm wasting my time with the 40% of clients that are maybe not a good fit or, or it doesn't fit our model, so on and so forth, hanging on to them is not working. So, you know, that was the first step. Well, what other, what other characteristics too, did you set to make sure or, or to know which ones weren't a fit? It's kind of like the employees. I mean, I, you know, I have relationship with all of our customers and, uh, you know, at that time I was getting to know them and some of them weren't just, weren't happy. Right. Um, you could, you, you could define why they're not happy, but if you can't get to a spot where there's peace and you can have a conversation and say, Hey, I appreciate you. You know, we appreciate you. And they, they say the same, then you need to either work that out or part ways in my opinion. Because there's too much turbulence. Does that make sense? If you're gonna if you're gonna be able to really crank the business, you you need a you need a client base that is a fit for you and you for them. It's not you know we're still a service provider, but maybe a client's gonna hang on for price or hang on for these things. But uh, and by the way, some of the customers came back. They'd call me and they'd say, "Can we come back?" And I said, "Well, we need to have a talk." And then you know through that talk, there was there was a much better relationship built. It's really interesting. I say like I've. I've said this on you know previous episodes, the highest value a CEO can make is attracting new customers and working on the customer side. And so like you have to automate everything else because your biggest value add is going to be outward facing. Um, you are probably one of the only people in the company that can push a customer away, fire them, and then bring them back in, get their prices right and get them on the right guardrails. There is something about there's no customer success yeah. manager that can do that salesperson that can do that like that has to be you, but you kind of said it best. You then make them into a champion for you. Like we're gonna have to have a talk. Okay, yeah, sure, we'll pay a little bit more. Yeah. Okay, now we're talking, right? Uh, Bruce, I'm curious. Like at your time at Printavo, you would get bogged down in the weeds, and then you'd be outward facing. Where do you think your highest value add was? Because you were also building a product too, but like you, you played both sides of it. Um, I would say, and just hearing you, Dan, is just like I don't think I was spending the right time in the right areas as much. I and I think that comes from when you start it. It's like this sort of 
zero to it's like you seem like you're the one to a hundred guy and i'm probably like the zero to one guy and those are two different skill sets whereas uh you know building it from nothing it's like yeah you're just in the weeds you're doing everything you you love like you know uh putting those those um those little tidbits together but then that skill set sucks going from one to hundred like that's just not, and then and then you're like watching you. It's like no, no, no. Uh, you know this is right. You know you're playing chess now. I was just playing Connect Four. So, <laughs> uh, so, but I should have. I those higher level things. Honestly, to answer the question, like those higher level things of the the getting the right team, coaching the right the the, the right team, not getting so spread thin with managing too many people. Um, I think makes it harder to coach because you're so you're so burnt out on on managing so many different le- many people. But but I think Bruce shop owners can look at this example and say, okay, I got my business to X. I don't know if I have the skill set to take it from X to a hundred because what I'm seeing here is Dan is is seasoned at this at mentoring people at creating you know programs rails whatever that might be. And it's not embarrassing for a shop to say, shit, I need help. I'm not good at this now. I've grown this thing to a million bucks. I'm going to bring consultants, coaches, other owners in, whatever that might be. Because that's what I'm also hearing, Dan, is you know, you have a really good relationship with the previous owner. There's a great legacy plan. He has an exit. You have an, a career. There's a lot of really positive that comes out of being very aware of yourself as a business owner. I don't know if you want to talk about like that awareness, but you don't see that happening. Well, I know uh, you guys are involved in, you know, some investment uh, money. Steven, I love your story about Mark Cuba, by the way, that was just classic. I was, I've never even heard one like that. So that that was really great. Uh, But there's doesn't suck. (laughs) No, no, just that you did, just that you did that. I mean, I thought, wow, that was kind of a ballsy move if you don't mind the language, but uh, it's, but investors uh, are challenging. I mean, uh, the reality, and I also heard you say it because I've you know, listened to a couple of podcasts. Uh, you know, for me, I just decided, you know, I want to focus just on the cu- – I want to use the skills that I've brought, and I want to focus just on the customers and the employees. Uh, it makes it a little easier, to be honest with you, because I, would, I was serving the owners. As you, <laughs> you probably know, Steve, right now, you get a lot – and by the way, it's necessary. If you're going to have investors, they're going to have questions, and they're going to need – those things. So I, I feel like this is kind of a dream for me because this, the, the owners went away. They're just gone. So I'm like, oh, now I can focus on the business. So uh, uh, so there's a skill set. I think that, you know, I'm not, I don't have to exercise. And I don't think I was very good at it, by the way. I, I, I my whole focus was the employees in the, in the business. And, and they were like, hey, Dan, you don't have our attention. And I'm thinking, ah, I'm doing my job, right? So I, I probably wasn't the best at that. Uh, but you know, I, I think also you mentioned, you know, if if you're going to focus on something, I think the the revenue and the, the clients are critical. Um, we say employees first, and I, I would agree with that, but without the customers, uh, you're not going to be very successful. So, you know, what I tried to do when I got here is, is really look at the things that I thought were great with the company and then look at the challenges. And I think, you know, really looking at the diversifying the client base and really, really getting in a relationship with those customers that they were more strategic and not tactical. Um, to, to just wrap up on the sales side too, the uh, cutting 40% or so out, which by the way, must be pretty scary. 
I, I feel like I'd be like, oh boy, you know, especially with overhead or whatever else is going on, just expense wise. How, how do you rebuild it? Like, where, where do you go? What, what, what's your next step to go out and start hunting now again? Yeah, and I kind of blew by that question with you, so you, it's a good one. We did it in the peak season when we, we were busier. We, we couldn't meet demand anyways, right? So it was we just decided, hey, if there's ever a time that we need to refine our client place, let's do it now. So we did that, and we did it as a team, and it was a great exercise. Then, then of course, the stress of knowing that, hey, you know, peak season is not going to last forever. We need new customers. Um, then I, you know, begin to look at. There's a tool out there that I use called Seamless AI. Um, there's a lots of them, Zoom Info. But what I started doing is I looked at. Okay, we want to get into clothing brands, and then I would do the research on clothing brand companies, and I would uh, create a target. Like even when I walked in the door, I picked five companies I'd like to do business with, and three of those are customers. Took years, right? But really, you know, targeting. I don't think referrals are great, and I, I, I've been criticized for saying that. I think for referrals are okay, and there's nothing better than a client saying, hey, you want to use these guys, but is that a fit for your business? Uh, you know, I think it's better to go out there and say, hey, this is what solutions we can do for you, Mr. or Mrs. Prospect, right? Does that make sense? And then really, you know, so, you know, I, I send out uh, about 20 to 30 emails per month that are targeted to the clients that I think would be good fits for us. And I do all the research on the company. I send them a personalized email. I use the CRM to, you know, help me with efficiencies. But, and then I, you know, I don't think phones are that, ex you know, if what they'll come back and, you know, if they come back and say, hey, we'd like to learn a little bit more, I try to get them into a Zoom call. We have a, in a conference room and bring in the management team and, you know, try to listen to them and figure out, you know, they can speak about their expertise and we can learn as much as we can about theirs. So I always say if we can get, if we can get a prospective client to a Zoom call, um, you know, the chances of closing are very, very high. But, I, you know, I think targeting and really, really looking at who do you want to be and what clients fit where you're going is super critical. And these tools now, the seamless AI, check this out. I mean, you can find out, unfortunately, their cell phone number, you know, their personal email, their work email. I mean, uh, you know, but you can really, you can find out the job titles of a company and who's doing what um, and be able to be pretty sure who you're talking to has a role in the decision for us. I think it's really interesting that, you know, there's no magic pill you can take your business to grow it. There's still that, hey, I'm going to make a list and prospect 30 of them, and I'm going to get a hold of them, and I'm not going to stop until I do, until they say no to me, right? Um, it seems like, Dan, you kind of have this formula in your head of, okay, if I can get one or two more contract customers a month, I can grow my business by this. Do you know what that number looks like for you? Like, what is your average value of a contract client? Like, do you try to measure those kind of things and play yeah, a game we, with yourself? I definitely don't think anybody doing under 20 grand a year is, is a good fit for us. Uh, but, you know, we're looking for those 100,000. Uh, you know, a good $100,000 client is, you know, in the top 40 or so of volume. I think those whales are great, but they don't come very often, so you don't want to shoot too high. But, uh, and, and really find, for example, in uniforms, you know, we work with different uniform companies and there's a lot of independent uniform companies out there. And I've been spending time telling them, hey, we know uniforms, we know what you're about, we do personalization, we just ship to home, things like that, and put that in the package that I send to them. Gotcha. What do you think over this journey? 
because you bought the shop, what year is that again? Is it 2018, 2019? Uh, it's been four years this in June. Okay, so four years. Pre-COVID, right before. Right COVID. before, yeah. Four years, like 3x <laughs> almost the growth. Um, you know, it looks like a pretty darn good track record here. Like, I have a really good team and everything. But what do you think you would have done differently? Uh, not bought the company right before COVID? No, just kidding. But it, uh, I wouldn't have <laughs> known that. Uh, it was... Yeah, time that was pretty stressful there. stuff for all of us, right? Uh, but again, I think it, like you said, Stephen, it, it gave us an opportunity to kind of, you know, reset. But uh, say that again, just to make sure I understand. Well, what would you have done differently over the last four years running the shop? Mm, I, we're struggling with with uh, the technology. Uh, we have a a portal system, which is really, really great. Our customers can log in. It's like a bank account. If you go on US Bank and you check your, your orders, uh, it's, it's, it's great. Um, but when I came in, I found out we didn't have the source code. Uh, it, it, you know, it's kind of homegrown, right? Um, I'm working with a good developer, but you know, developing software, and you know, maybe I should talk to you, Bruce, but developing software uh, and keeping our DNA on that software has been difficult. We think we're going to get it done in three months, but you know, I don't know. I, I guess I'll say this. I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say it this way because I don't want to come off as critical, but in logistics, there's just you pick one of four packages and you go. There's nothing, there's nothing that I could see that would follow our DNA. I did a lot of research on different programs, more shop-focused. Ours is a portal that is really more toward them, front-facing. So developing, mm -hmm. we're, we're over 400 grand in investment in this uh, read version, and I'm just praying that it, that it works. So did I use the right developer? Uh, did, I, you know, did we do the right process in, in software development? And will this work is still kind of... A question mark um you know so yeah, that's that's really interesting when you look at other industries that are much more established this is what you use and you just go with us we are i mean you know we use printavo but we use the printavo api and we have a cto and an engine you know and, and he's got contractors um i think when you start to unlock the next level of business you'd basically have to make a commitment to technology that looks like a black hole you might not ever get out of like <laughs> like i'm going down this and here i go and and that's a risky spot to do it. and shop should not be thinking about that until you've broken the five six million dollar range i'm curious bruce how, what your thoughts are bruce you get so many people that are like i'm just gonna build it myself and you're like okay uh i'm curious what advice you have for shops yeah. It's the same um, thing I think, Dan, you're encountering uh, where software is kind of like this iceberg where you, you just see the tip of it and it's like, all right, cool, you know, two months or something. And I even I still get into the you know, habit of, all right, cool, we're almost there. But that 90 percent, that last 10 percent or so is almost excruciatingly long to get right. And, and the, the weird thing about software, which is kind of like running a shop, though, is just like the scalability is tricky <clears throat> and so you know it's not like it's done you're like okay cool i've got the team i've got the equipment everything it's just like a constant oh can can we change it to do this or can we change it to have that or oh shoot it doesn't load very quickly anymore because this person has a thousand orders on the one page and we didn't think about paginating it or we you know or the the speed of it or um we had the problem where the other day one of the vendors like just 
disappeared. And so it was replacing, you know, because you have to buy all these other little tools to power it as well. Um, so I would just lower expectations. <laughs> I think that's my only thing is like lower expectations. It's going to take longer than you think and be more expensive, um, like building a house or something. But the shops that unlock it, pretty cool to watch. It is. When I mean, they get it's there. It's pretty cool to see like liquid graphics and the systems they've built. It's pretty cool to see, you know. But I think I think the other thing too is that everybody has a web of systems. Like nobody, even the larger shops, they will have, you know, this connects to here, this person types this data into there and this feeds here and then I download it into Excel and, you know, parse it. <laughs> uh, My website just looked like custom ink. <laughs> well, one, one of the things in, in, in Bruce, you know, might once we get to the certain spot, I, I, I saw on a, I think it was a at a show, somebody asked you, what about the customer-facing part, the portal, what I call the portal? Uh, mm. By the way, you can't make all things, and you're exactly right on software. I mean, it's, you know, unfortunately, I'm, I'm impatient with software, and it makes it worse because I get frustrated. But, uh, you know, our, our portal system, our customers log in, upload their orders, their art. They, they approve everything online, and I think it's really, really cool, and I think the owner did a great job, but the problem is, is there's not a lot of back end to that. Um, so we're going to develop, we're redeveloping the front end, but then, you know, maybe, God, would be a prayer is, is that maybe we can map into Printable on the back, right, or do something. I just, I think mm -hmm. there's, I don't think we can go it on our own, just keep you know, what, what do we get up to a million dollars investment in software? Cause we're, we're on our own. Right. So, you know, hopefully friends, there's, there's a solution where it's like, Hey, this is the time where here's some tools. And I think the industry is growing up. Obviously you've done some great stuff and I've followed your stuff, Bruce, but you know, the question is, is for us is when and how can we integrate that? And hopefully there's where we can kind of outsource more of our, uh, you know, more of our software and our systems or at least integrate them yeah, together. Definitely. Yeah, we'll chat. Um, I, my last kind of curious question is how did you finance this business? Like how did the money and, and reinvestment, first of all, just buying the business and then, you know, did you have to reinvest more? Was it profitable enough where you could reinvest just with the business? Yeah, I, there's a lot in acquisitions. It's so funny. I was in merger acquisitions and I did it and. I did what you guys probably know as an asset sale. I think, Stephen, you, you went to a C corporation for your investment. I was used to stock sales, C corporations. You know, Mark Cuban's a pretty seasoned veteran, so he probably said, hey, we got to restructure your company. Uh, the only way to buy a small business that's an S corp is through an asset sale. I don't like it. Uh, you, you basically, just so you know, you lose all your credit. Right, I had to I had to use my personal credit on the business because it's a new EIN number. Uh, I've made this a C corporation. I said I'm not going to go through that again. If somebody wants to invest or buy the business, there, there, it's going to be a stock sale. So, uh, as far as capital, that that created a lot of constraints on capital. I've pretty much bootstrapped this, and that's not what I envisioned. Um, pretty tough. Also, you mentioned when I bought the company, I didn't understand how old the equipment was and the liability of the capex. So. I, I still would have bought the business. It was a fair price, but I did not budget. Uh, like, we have 44 Tajima heads. We only have one machine after four years left that's the same machine. Everything else I sold for used and had to buy brand new stuff because it is at the end of its life. The same thing with the, the, the presses and things like that. Again, not a knock on the owner at all because, you know, he, he was doing the best he could, but I didn't have the expertise to understand what I was looking at. I think we put three million probably in capex, something like that, over four years. 
But again, you've got to remember, we only had four presses, now we have seven, right? We only had 30 to GMA heads, now we have 44, so on and so forth. But still, it's, uh, it was, so to answer your question, that was the part that I didn't, uh, you know, I, I didn't smile about, and I thought, well, I missed that one. But, you know, you, again, it's just part of the business. Right now, we're in a rhythm where we work with the leasing company, and I just look at it as, as if I buy this piece of equipment, what is the monthly payment, and what can I make out of it? And a pretty good rhythm with that now. Couldn't do that in the beginning. Did you did you go in, did you raise prices on um, most accounts when you went in? Because I'm sure you know everything was lower than probably market should be. Yeah, so the previous owner was very shy on price increases, scared to do it, so I'm not. Um, mm-hmm. We probably are thirty four percent higher than when I, four years ago. Now again, inflation is you know we one year we went twenty two percent right in the middle of COVID right, but uh, I think our our prices are marketable. What I will tell you, and I, I'll say this gently as well, is I think there's some idea out there that uh, screen print is kind of a low paid industry. Um, we we definitely were below market as far as wages. We didn't have any benefits. I just felt like you know if if this company is going to make it, I have to raise the prices fear, fearlessly, and I have to be able to pay market rates. Where you know you don't walk into Silver Screen and make more than a you know competitive warehouse or so on and so forth. But the warehouses were two or three dollars higher than us in pay. So, you know, you've got Amazon here and Tesla and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, so I just kind of took a leap of faith. You know, I call a lot of the customers and say, hey, look, i got to get the quality. i got to get better uh, retention here, and I've got to get higher quality employees. I need your help. Um, and then full. Mm. And did you raise them? Do you raise them annually, too? Um, I, we did the first year, and then um, – and then I've just been doing it based upon what I can see as economics, inflation, things like that, and our needs. Um, and, and, and again, with those 40%, some of the customers are very unhappy with it. And, uh, you know, that kind of made it a little easier for us. I mean, the ones that felt we were a value for a higher price were the ones that stayed, right? Um, I, I think also medical uh, full benefits are really important. I mean, the employees are only pay $25 per paycheck for their medical. I know people get medical, and then it's so expensive the, the, the shop employee can't afford it. I just Our turnover was pretty high when I came here, and now, you know, we've, we've really, really, we've got some, you know, the, the front part of the shop stayed, but the, but the shop was, turnover was very high. Uh, it's, it's fairly low now. I'd like to be better for sure, but it is much, much lower. All right, Daniel, um, you are amazing. I think you, you know so many numbers. You just rattled off about your business off the top of your heads, which is really cool that you're, you know, so in the weeds and even know that, um, you know, to know that you raise prices 34% roughly, uh, is pretty neat. Um, can, I know you're on Instagram, so people can follow you. It's, uh, let's see, Silver Screen Reno. And uh, is that the best way to reach out to you? Sure. Yeah, that's great. Okay, awesome. Daniel, thanks so much. Well, great. I'm, one of the things, just as in closing, I've, you know, I decided Nick encouraged me is to get a little bit more out there and start meeting some people. I mean, it's been head down, you know, coming home, taking care of an elderly family and things like that. But I'll definitely be, you know, at some of the shows, definitely in January. I always forget that show's name, but I'll definitely be down there. Hopefully, can meet meet you guys. Yeah. Hey, producers, we appreciate you listening again to this episode. This is Daniel Frank, Silver Screen Printing and Embroidery. We'll see you on the next episode.
Thanks so much for listening. Hopefully that was informative. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to like. Don't forget to hit the bell for notifications if you enjoyed this video. If you enjoy all the stuff we're putting out, it's really helpful. We love to just be able to see it. That means that we're doing a good job. To subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, and hit the like button. And I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.